As we continue our Epiphany series on aha moments, I chose two texts, one from the Hebrew Bible and one from the New Testament. Let us hear what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5. And the one who is seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. In this season of Epiphany and this new season here at this church, we wonder what's next for us. What will the future hold? And so I thought it might be kind of interesting for our communal life together to spend some time seeking out different ways to invite more aha moments into our lives. And so last week, I invited us to observe. More specifically, I invited us to observe parts of ourselves that feel like useless gifts. This week, we will entertain the method of listening and learning. Most innovators, creatives, and originals will tell you that objective learning is one of the ways to cultivate new insights. We must take in new information if we are to open ourselves to new ideas. But it's not just about reading our favorite books or listening to our favorite podcasts. This strategy for innovation is to practice a non-judgmental process of objective data collecting, where we ask calm, curious questions and interviewing people with points of view that are different than our own. Listening and learning is about cross-pollination of ideas and experiences. And if we do this with an openness of heart, listening and learning cultivates deep empathy for others. This is exactly what Dr. Martin Luther King did in his life. Not only was Dr. King a great innovator for social change, but he had this incredible hunger for knowledge. He studied history. He studied Gandhi. But he also spoke in person with people from all walks of life, from the streets of Harlem to the streets of Calcutta. His data collection changed the course of his own God-given call from solely focusing on racism to being a part of a multiracial movement called the Poor People's Campaign. Now, there's so much to say about Brother Martin, as my professor, Dr. Vincent Harding, called him. But on this particular Sunday, on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I invite us all to remember that Reverend King was a Christian pastor and preacher at heart. His work in the streets was a 
result of his deep love and care for his people. His activism was pastoral in nature. So today, I thought it might be better, instead of hearing from me and my thoughts, to listen and learn from his words. And so I've gleaned a few passages from his famous sermon, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, a sermon that King preached at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. on March 31st, 1968. It was his last Sunday sermon. Myself and Pastor Tammy and Pastor Jackie will read these passages in three parts. And in between these parts, we will sing a verse of Precious Lord, which was Dr. King's favorite hymn. But first, I invite us all to pray for God's Holy Spirit to be upon this reading of our brother Martin, that our minds and hearts be opened in a new way to this 50-year-old sermon that is still relevant for us today. Let us pray. Holy and precious Lord, there is something haunting about reading Dr. King's words today. Perhaps it is because they still ring true 50 years later. Some believe that we have made progress. Others do not. And so we ask that you open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear a new word, a new insight, a refreshed spirit this day. Create deep empathy and compassion in our bones, O oh Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The text for the morning is found in the book of Revelation. There are two passages there that I would like to quote in the 16th chapter of the book. Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. I'm sure that most of you have read that arresting little story from the pen of Washington Irving entitled Rip Van Winkle. The one thing that we usually remember about this story is that Rip Van Winkle slept 20 years. But there is another point in that little story that is almost completely overlooked. It was the sign in the end from which Rip went up in the mountain for his long sleep. When Rip Van Winkle went up into the mountain, the sign had a picture of King George III of England. When he came down 20 years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington the first president of the, of the United States. When Rip Van Winkle looked up at the picture of George Washington and looking at the picture, he was amazed. He was completely lost. He knew not who he was. And this reveals to us that the most striking thing about the story of Rip Van Winkle is not merely that Rip slept 20 years, but that he slept through a revolution. While he was peacefully snoring up in the mountain, a revolution was taking place that at points would change the course of history. And Rip knew nothing about it. He was asleep. Yes, he slept through a revolution. 
And one of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living amid a great period of social change, and yet they will fail to develop the new attitudes, the new mental responses, the new situation that it demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that a great revolution is taking place in the world today. In a sense, it is a triple revolution. That is, a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation. Then there is the revolution in weaponry with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare. Then there is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that is taking place all over the world. Yes, we do live in a period where changes are taking place. And still, there is the voice crying through the vista of time saying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. Now, whenever anything new comes into history, it brings with it new challenges and new opportunities. And I would like to deal with the challenges that we face today as a result of this triple revolution that is taking place in the world today. First, we are challenged to develop a world perspective. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And anyone who feels that he can live alone is sleeping through a revolution. The world in which we live is geographically one. The challenge that we face today is to make it one in terms of brotherhood. Now, it is true that the geographical oneness of this age has come into being to a large extent through modern man's scientific ingenuity. Modern man, through his scientific genius, has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that took weeks or even months. And all of this tells us that our world is a neighborhood. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood. And yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow and in some way, we have got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We must see this, believe this, and live by it. If we are to remain awake, through a great revolution.
Secondly, we are challenged to eradicate the last vestige of racial injustice from our nation. I must say this morning that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. It is an unhappy truth that racism is a way of life for the vast majority of white Americans, spoken and unspoken, acknowledged and denied, subtle and yet not so subtle. The disease of racism permeates and poisons a whole body and I can see nothing more urgent than for America to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the disease of racism. Sometimes positive must be done. Everyone must share in the guilt as individuals and as institutions. The government, the government, must certainly share the guilt. Individuals must share the guilt. And even the church must share the guilt. We must face the sad fact that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, in Christ there is no east or west, we stand in the most segregated hour of America. The hour has come for everybody, for all institutions of the public sector and the private sector to work to get rid of racism. And now, if we are to do it, we must honestly admit certain things and get rid of certain myths that have constantly been disseminated all over our nation. One is the myth of time. It is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. And there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. Only time can solve the problem. And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray, in 100 or 200 years, the problem will work itself out. There is an answer to that myth. It is, the it is that time is neutral. It can be used whether constructively or deconstructively. Destructively. And I am sorry to say this morning that I am absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists of our nation, the people on the wrong side have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill 
And it may well be that we have to repent in this generation. Not merely for the violent words and the violent action of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around us and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of injustice. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, Time itself becomes an ally for the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that time is always ripe to do right. We must come to see that the root of racism are very deep in our country. And there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all of the, effort, the effects of racism and tragedies of racial injustice. There is another thing closely related to racism that I would like to mention as another challenge. We are challenged to rid our nation and the world of poverty like a monstrous octopus. Poverty spreads it's nagging huge tentacles into the hamlet and villages all over our world. Two-thirds of the people of the world go to bed hungry tonight. They're ill-housed. They're ill-nourished. They are shabby-clawed. I have seen it in Latin America. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in this poverty, actually, in Asia. One day, we will have to stand before God of history, and we will talk in terms of things we've done. Yes. We will be able to say we built a huge gigantrum of a bridge to span the seas. We built gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Yes, we made our submarines to penetrate the ocean's depths. We brought into being many other things with our specific and technical powers. Internet, okay. It seems that I can hear God's history saying, that's not enough. But I was hungry, and ye fed me not. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. I was devoid of a decent sanitary house to live in, and yet provided no shelter for me. And consequently, you cannot enter the kingness of greatness. If ye do, it's unto the least of these, my brethren, ye do it unto me. That's the question facing America today.
I want to say one other challenge that we face is simply that we must find an alternative to war and bloodshed. It is no longer a choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. And the alternative to disarmament, the alternative to a greater suspension of nuclear tests, the alternative to strengthening the United Nations and thereby disarming the whole world, may well be a civilization plunged into the abyss of annihilation and our earthly habitat would be transformed into an inferno that even the mind of Dante could not imagine. This is why I felt the need of raising my voice against that war and working wherever I can to arouse the conscience of our nation on it. I remember so well when I first took a stand against the war in Vietnam. The critics took me on and they had their say in the most negative and sometimes most vicious way. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. <clears throat> on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? And then expedience comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? There comes a time when one must take the position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. I believe today that there is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and say in the words of the old Negro spiritual, we ain't gonna study war no more. This is the challenge facing modern man. Let me close by saying that we have difficult days ahead in the struggle for justice and peace, but I will not yield to a politic of despair. I'm going to maintain hope as we come to Washington in this campaign. The cards are stacked against us. This time we will really confront a Goliath. God grant that we will be that David of truth set out against the Goliath of injustice, the Goliath of neglect, the Goliath of refusing to deal with the problems and go on with the determination to make America the truly great America that it is called to be. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. And so, however dark it is, however deep the angry feelings are, and however violent explosions are, I can still sing, we shall overcome. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. 
And with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. God grant that we will be participants in this newness, in this magnificent development. If we will but do it, we will bring about a new day of justice and brotherhood and peace. And that day, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout with joy. God bless you. Amen.